Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. The purple alien has replaced the dinosaurs as the joke of the day. It is the conversation piece today. Yes, yes. Well, you're... Your, your sons are quite adept at providing us with conversation pieces. Yep, yep. I mean, <laughs> if they start asking for compensation, then we'll have to shut that down, I guess. But, yeah, that's uh, right. Because all <laughs> the money we make on the hedge from all the advertising, <laughs> we would hate to give them a slice. Although, I don't know, when I was leaving the Air Force, people said, why are you leaving the Air Force? And I said, well, because they said, you get a great retirement after 20 years. And I said, well, you know. Whatever the percentage is of nothing, it's still nothing. It just <laughs> is. <laughs> There's just nothing there. Sorry. So, so, and today we have Jeff Tensura, who is flying apparently because he's just surrounded by clouds. I'm not sure he's flying. It's clouds and Alta. So, it's clouds and Alta. Yeah. Well, we can see you flapping your arms, Jeff. So don't don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm mentally flying. Well, physically. <laughs> See, Jeff is Jeff's an overachiever. Some of us have our heads in the cloud. He has his entire body in the clouds. Yeah, I that's yeah, that's right. You can only see my feet. <laughs> <laughs> so, and today we are joined by Rachi, 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 Rachi Singh. Yeah. Okay, good. Who uh, wrote this really interesting? She's a researcher at Microsoft. Is that correct? Okay, yeah. and. You know, we talk a lot about traffic levels and stuff on the global, on the DFZ, on the internet and wide area. And this kind of seeps into the wide area market and thinking about wide area routers. And she wrote this really interesting article over in APNIC about making wide area routers less busy, which is always a good topic for folks who are interested in anything to do with providers and wide area networks. So, Rachi, why don't you like just, well, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself if you want to, like where you came from, what you're working on, stuff like that. Very happy to be here. So my name is Rachi. I'm a researcher at Microsoft. I work in the broad space of wide area networking, and I often look at the, the physical layer while, while looking at the performance and, and sort of monitoring the performance of wide area networks. Uh, before this, I did uh, my PhD at UMass Amherst, and even before that, I was a software developer for Arista Network. So I was uh, building some of their routing protocol implementations uh, about eight, six, eight years ago. Oh, it's your fault. Okay, thanks. <laughs> now, we, now I know who to blame about any of the defects in BGP specifically. I Is didn't that what do, no, about? okay. So I, I didn't do too much to BGP. That's the key. I, 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 always, I always end that statement with, I used to be blah, 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 and then I didn't do BGP. So, I, you know, the, you know. <laughs> I mainly did IGP stuff, so OSPF and VRFs and, you know, things okay. of that nature. Did a very okay. little bit of BGP, but I won't tell you what it was. <laughs> well, even OSPF, I mean, you know, the saying we used to have was, we wouldn't let our kids play with four-letter protocols. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, BGP is okay. It's three letters. IS to IS is, is okay because it's four letters in a symbol, and that's okay. <laughs> But and, and I guess oh, RIP is okay for some RIP reason. RIP is okay. It's, RIP is okay. It's, yeah, RIP is okay. <laughs> and, and, and EIGRP is perfectly fine, but that OSPF stuff, 
This yeah. explains so much about you, Russ, that I never <laughs> understood before. <laughs> so, so anyway, I don't know if any of that is helpful, but so, okay. So tell us about this research and what you've been working on and kind of why you went this path. Okay. So, so the hunch with this, so this, this was a piece of work we started about uh, a year and a half ago and uh, me and a couple of collaborators, um, some some in Microsoft Research, some of us in Azure Networking, we were looking at the physical layer and the hunch there was that given how, how well we know the traffic patterns within the wide area network that we were operating, can we do something to sort of make the WAN routers less busy? And while doing it also kind of save the cost we have of provisioning capacity in this network. And this was at the height of COVID, uh, the demands were surging. We were producing a lot of capacity all the time. Uh, my collaborators and Azure Networking were very busy uh, doing this stuff amongst all the other amazing things they do. So the hunch there was, let's look at how inter-data center traffic, sort of what patterns does it have? And do these patterns really just hold? Are they, are they, are they kind of remaining stable over time? And that began, the, the hunch was that's likely the case because, you know, we, we have... Uh, predictable demands in these in these cloud networks sometimes because a lot of the traffic could be uh, discretionary traffic like backups and so on. So that's where this this idea came from. And then we uh, spent some time looking at the traffic patterns between data centers over months and years of data, and we found that it it turns out that the large majority of traffic that undergoes what are called optical to electrical to optical conversions at wide area routers. Um, it's just passing through the router. It doesn't really have to be converted from optical to electrical only to be converted back to optical again. And with that realization, once we, once we had that insight, we were like, how do we do better? Because once we once we decide to keep the traffic in the optical domain for about as long as possible, then the router's job becomes easier because now the electrical router is not, not seeing all these all this traffic in, on its ports and its fabric and so on. Uh, and, and that was sort of uh, the, the the big idea in this work. Okay, so so there's always been this discussion about let's stop converting stuff to electrical in in middle hops or in middle boxes of any kind, whether it's routers or whatever. So you're kind of looking at that same space. It sounds like you're kind of looking yes. at that same concept. Okay, it, it is. I think I think okay. the inside there is the the, the, the really um, kind of inside here was. We could not have, when we designed this, uh, the physical layer of this network, we didn't know what the traffic patterns would be about 10 years later. But having operated it for so long, we are fairly confident of what this traffic looks like. Okay. So is the idea then to turn it into a simple optical switching node that with, with, with no impact on the, like the fib in the device and to just do optical switching? And, and, and so with this, this would unburden the CPU of the router, but. Absolutely. So, so. How do you so in effect you're taking an IP router and also making an opt, making it an optical switching node? So we already have that. So you're exactly right. We already have that set up. So we have the router. We have the optical switch or the rodem. Uh, and the only decision we are making is that if the traffic is it doesn't need to be converted to the electrical domain and get routed somewhere, then let's keep some some traffic. And when I say traffic at the physical area, I'm actually just talking about wavelengths of light. So I'm saying. There are some wavelengths that we could just keep as is and just not do the OEO conversion. 
and we already had that architecture where there is a router and then there's a rodent and the and the you know the there there are uh, ad drops and so on happening uh, at the router. So 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 very much what you said. Yeah. Okay, but you're taking advantage of the architecture in hand, which is that you have a rodent behind most every router. So yes. you're so you're kind of offloading the switching from the router onto the rodent. You're actually kind of using the router as a controller in effect. Is that a good way of putting it? Hmm. That, I think it is a or good is way of putting it. I think it, it is partly true. So what you said is partly true. So the okay. reason I say partly is because the router is not actively participating in making this decision on the fly, in which case, yes, you're right. It would be a controller if the router was actively participating in the process of you know, deciding which wavelength uh, undergoes an OEO conversion and which wavelength does not. By the way, I'm, I'm sure you know, but OEO is optical to electrical to optical conversion. It's more sort of a design problem that given we know what traffic the network tends to carry and what ranges it falls in, can we better fit the physical topology to match those uh, match those traffic patterns such that now our routers have to do fewer unnecessary things? And it so happens that by doing this, we also end up shaving 40% of the costs of provisioning capacity between two points in the van. Uh, I, th I think it's important to clarify uh, the demand generation is well known, right? So you know yes. exactly which traffic goes where. So traditionally, you would have, you know, in, in PLS network, you would have a prefix to label mapping or fact, and you would need yep. to do the lookup dynamically every time. Since demand is known, topology is known, the only thing you really need to have is this mapping of uh, destination. That could be BGP next hop that could be recursively resolved for other routes to particular tunnel, right? So the lookup is very simple. It's really one label lookup. And then much more complicated work is how much traffic are you going to send into particular tunnel, your uh, backup and preemption schemas. But all of this can be done with a reasonably simple concept, usually known as superfex or next hub group, depending on what you do. Right. So, so let, let me expand a little bit of my understanding of what Jeff really uh, just said. So I think Jeff was talking about how uh, software-defined, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, so how software-defined traffic engineering is really sort of the way traffic is getting routed in these wide area networks. And the good thing about that is exactly what how Jeff was saying is that the decisions are being made that we know this is a source, this is going to generate X units of traffic, for example, in the next Y minutes, and that's that, estimate is usually quite quite good because we've seen these services in the past. And then with that estimate for all sources and destinations in the network, we can make decisions like, how do I split this traffic from this source to this destination on the four tunnels that I have? And given this dynamic of how routing is happening in the network, um, it is easier to identify these patterns in traffic because it's relatively, we, we know the demands more often than not. And then we also know the algorithm that allocates these demands into the network. Um, so, 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 yeah, may, maybe that um, adds some color to what uh, Jeff was just saying. An interesting part, from learning perspective, we constantly reinforce the learning. So because we get all the data in terms of IPC and all other stuff, so we know exactly whether demand we calculated or system calculated. <laughs> and real demand are matching. And if not, 
we can introduce additional data into the learning algorithm to actually adjust itself based on particular inputs, right? So it's getting better. It's kind of self-learning system in a way, which is really cool. So you mentioned the tunnel. So there's a tunnel head end somewhere. Is the tunnel head end, is it the thing discriminating between flows and saying this one should remain in the optical domain and then the other one can take the traditional router path? Is it is it making a decision like that? Uh, so what, sorry. Right. Go ahead, yeah, so I think what, what um, Tom, you're talking about would be a very active system. The one that is making the decision of which route takes sort of this almost all optical parts and which one does not. I think there are benefits to doing that, but that's not what we did as at least in the work that uh, that I spoke of in, in the APNIC block and, and also the work that we've been doing. And the reason for that is we're looking at this as a network design as opposed to a traffic engineering problem. And the main reason for that is there's a lot of sort of big changes or big savings to be had by just making these one-off decisions where you look at the traffic and you realize this pattern is very stable. For instance, if between, and I'm just making this up, so between New York, Chicago, and say, uh, I'm going to say Atlanta, um, between uh, so all of the traffic that is going to Chicago, for example, if all that traffic does is it just gets routed to Atlanta, that's all, hap- that's, all that's happening to majority of the traffic going from New York to Chicago, and then it just, it just gets routed to Atlanta. And it makes sense to not do the conversion from electric from optical to electrical back to optical only to route it to Atlanta. Instead, if we just configure the router, configure the optical switch at Chicago to pass through the traffic, then we just we are saving all of the router ports that we'd be using in the process of doing this conversion. And at the same time, we are making the router less busy. It doesn't have to deal with all of this traffic anymore. And we're keeping the traffic entirely in the optical domain from New York all the way to Atlanta. Now, there are downsides associated with doing this. Absolutely. The the flexibility of this traffic has now been reduced. There's almost in your your IP layer topology, instead of having a link from New York to Chicago to Atlanta, you have a direct link between New York and Atlanta, right? Because you just sort of bypassed the router in Chicago. Um, and that that does lead to some loss and flexibility. But we, we found that we designed this network with flexibility in mind, but patterns for a lot of the traffic tend to be very stable. So maybe there is a trade-off here between how much flexibility we want and how much sort of efficiency we want in terms of cost and you know how, the work that the router has to do. So one of the most favorite topics among Cross and myself is networking complexity. We've been talking about this since we remember ourselves. Yeah, uh, and I think it's a very good example where you reduce complexity by abstracting by losing flexibility in optical layer. However, if you look at IP layer, there's actually a lot of additional data. So if we look at BGP, for example, and again the system doesn't resolve every route; it tries to resolve BGP next hop, which is a way to to do recursiveness while preserving little number of uh, real effects. Right, uh, BGP would hide all the next hops that are not best paths, right? So in order to preserve all this information, suddenly you go into add pass land and your add pass grows. To give you a number, 50 million, 100 million routes is not unthinkable, 
right? So your rib size is like insane, but you have all the data you need to figure out what's the best path from software-defined logic to take to, and then provisioning is very simple, really. Again, you need to create binding between particular set of destinations to a label path. And so this sounds like it's largely applicable in realms where you would have this information, right? I mean, just just thinking at it from a network engineering perspective, like, could my network run this kind of thing? The answer would be, well, it kind of depends on whether or not you understand your traffic flows that well, right? Is that to some I, I degree? Imper- absolutely. I think an empirical understanding of how traffic is flowing between van routers is absolutely essential. But the thing is that the system and the tool that we propose will take that as an input. Okay. So you could you could you could feed into the system some sort of traffic matrices and figure out where can you which wavelengths of light and which nodes in the network can be places where you can skip optical to electrical to optical conversions. Okay. And so the, so one of the primary things you're getting to here is that this is a tool that would do that kind of work for people who may not have the kind of advanced information, knowledge, training, skills to do that kind of tuning by hand, essentially. Yes. I think the major point is really know your stuff, right? Know what your network is doing, have observability in place, get all the data, have backends that can process this data and make it actionable. So... Can you kind of describe, okay, so the optical bypass part is kind of cool. Now, for people who don't know what a Rotom is, because we have a wide variety of engineers who listen to this thing, can you kind of describe what a Rotom is? I mean, I know what it is. I'm sure Tom has hit it. I know Jeff does, but can you kind of describe what a Rotom is? So so let me first define the, the acronym. So it's a reconfigurable optical ad drop multiplexer. That's a mouthful. Before the reconfigurable stuff, there used to be odems that were not reconfigurable. So that's the, the extra thing that the R gives you. And what the what this device sort of has the capability of doing is it allows you to add drop traffic or let traffic pass through. Let me say more. So when I say traffic here, I'm talking about wavelengths of light. So the physical entities are wavelengths of light. And this device lets wavelengths of light get added and then be routed on a fiber path or get dropped, which means they get routed to a uh, to an electrical packet switch or a router above. So that's the add drop functionality. And at the same time, it also lets you have a port, an ingress port, and an egress port, and wavelengths can light, wavelengths of light can simply pass through and be routed back on fiber, which is what uh, which is what optical bypass would be. And that's what we've been talking about. So that's essentially what this device allows you to do. And it is reconfigurable, which means you can decide later on if you want to switch connections and do a versus B, so route, route wavelength from port I to port J, that's reconfigurable. Is, is that uh, enough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, we're talking, we are primarily talking about wave WD, uh, WDWM, like wave division multiplexing yeah, yeah. here. Like, like you can't really do this in a non WDM or a, a non wave division multiplex system, just so that people understand, like, this is. Yeah, let, now, let me, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I can hear a bit more. So, so just to clarify what, what you said, yeah, I should have said more about that. So you imagine that you have a fiber path on the left, you have a fiber path on the right that the rodem is connected to. What Russ was talking about was WDM, which is wavelength division multiplexing. It's essentially what this technology lets you do. It is a really, really cool piece of techno- technology that lets you sort of pack 
different wavelengths of light onto the same fiber. And then there is the dense wavelength division multiplexing, which we use in wide area networks and long haul networks of, our, of different types, where you can pack a large number of cells, 80 to 120 wavelengths on the same fiber path. Um, and then that's where the use of this rhodium uh, comes in because it lets you at, at points where the rhodium is located, it lets you switch optical wavelengths from one port to another and also add and drop them to an electrical router. So if our listeners are looking at crash course in optical, I would highly recommend Richard Stenberger's presentation at Nanoc. He's been doing it for the last 15 years, probably updating calls, everything he wanted to know about optical networking. He updated it about a year ago, just searched Nanoc. It's pretty amazing. It's two hours of pure gold. Yeah, good, good. Okay, I just wanted to make sure people weren't trapped, like, you know, going, oh, I'm totally lost in the hedge. <laughs> so, yeah, that's good. So, Going back to, I mean, so the idea here is and was to propose a system that allows you as a network operator to say, all right, I don't may not know how to do this, but I'm interested in being able to do it on my network, right? That's kind yeah. of where you're getting at. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. So describe for us a little bit, perhaps, where you came to in designing that. I think it's called, uh, what was, yeah, that's right. There you go. I couldn't find it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the name Shufly actually, so I, it comes from Shufly. could be a bridge, and that's what, or a bypass in a in a road network, and that's what we wanted to call this system because we're essentially creating bypasses, optical bypasses in the wide area network. So, so let, let me let me talk about the tool in the sense of how could you potentially use it, and the, there's certainly a, a technical report that can walk you through the steps and the algorithms involved. So, if you have a graph of your network where each node represents a WAN router and the connectivity is between, so you, you know the fiber paths between these routers, you know the IP layer um, links between these routers. You would need to know, like, uh, like Jeff was saying, you would need to know the traffic demand matrices in this network. So how much traffic, say, in, in X intervals of time goes from any node A to B. And what this tool would really, with this input of what is the physical topology? What wavelengths of light are there on the fiber? And what is the router level topology? And then what is the traffic matrix? Given this input to the algorithm, it will solve for this main question. And that question is, which wavelengths of light in my network can bypass which nodes? And by nodes, I mean routers. So it essentially tells you wavelength lambda one can bypass the router in Chicago and it's not going to change anything significantly about your network. It will not change the fact. It, it, it will not change how many how much uh, traffic you can accommodate in the network, for example. And that's it. It's going to tell you that. When it tells you that there's a network operator's um, action required, the, the, the operator can look at the suggestions from the system and decide, okay, I can go ahead and make that change. I can configure this bypass on the Chicago router. What's going to happen as a result of this is now... The, the New York and the Atlanta router will appear to be directly connected to your IP layer protocols because you've essentially bypassed the router in Chicago. And a sort of alternate thing that might happen as a result of this is because you're potentially you know, routing this wavelength of light for a longer distance before you regenerate the wavelength of light, you might have reduced its capacity a little. And that's the key trade-off in the system, which is, you're essentially stretching how far the wavelength of light is traveling on the fiber path before it undergoes a regeneration. 
And I can talk a lot more about this, but that's the trade-off. You you get to sort of stretch your wavelengths of light over a longer fiber path, but you might trade off some capacity for it. And that's the core contribution of the system that it tries to navigate that trade-off optimally. So it tries to find those points of optical bypass in your network that give you the best of both worlds. You do not compromise on capacity and you still get to save how busy your routers are and how much cost you're spending in terms of router ports in provisioning capacity in your network. So I, they, I have they, a question. Okay. Oh, I just, um, this is probably a pretty fundamental question, but so how, when, when you, you, you're going to bypass a node, what happens to the next hops? So how does the next hop get transformed from being that node that you're bypassing to the one that you're now, that you're now going directly to? Is this, is BGP doing this or how, how are the next hops getting populated? It is, the BGP is, so I'm, think of this as something that you do sort of in your, like a dislike, like the process of provisioning capacity in the network. It's a design problem essentially. So you go ahead and you configure the bypass and just, the route, so, so the change is happening at a layer much below routing protocols in the network. So you're you're mm-hmm. you're doing this, yeah. It, it's several layers of abstraction below, and it's it could be something that can be reconfigured on the rodem. It could also be something that you, if you don't have an advanced device, you might actually have to slice fiber sometimes. So it's it's really um, it's an out of band process that might involve manual intervention. The system will tell you here are the things that you can do. And I can tell you the one that will give you the most saving. I can tell you the bypass that you should configure that will be the best for your network in terms of the router ports you're freeing up, in terms of like the, the cost you're saving by doing this. But in the end, implementing this bypass is an sort of out-of-band process that the operator has to decide whether they want to invest in. That's really interesting. The, it's an informed trade-off. I think there's a lot of yeah. trade-offs that we make in networking that we don't really even know what we're trading against. And this seems like a good way to expose. You can do this, but at this expense, um, yeah. I think that's a that's pretty interesting. And, and yeah, that was and, one of uh, the yeah. The prices are changing constantly. You see, big development market with that are that are plus optics that are now pluggables and from other to go directly into the router. So that might change a bit cost per port per bit here. So. As Rishi mentioned, there's constant analysis of trade-offs in terms of uh, total cost of ownership. And sometimes it's just basic availability of devices, resources, and many other things. But there's a lot of stuff that's going into the system to produce right results. Absolutely. That's that's absolutely correct. So is one of those things, though, when I think about this kind of thing, I often think about as well that a packet switch network is primarily designed to route around failures and problems. And if I'm taking something like I'm effectively making what is today a packet switch path into what is now a circuit switch path in my network, that's effectively what I'm doing here in order to save the cost of packet switching. Does this system also think about or take into account anything to do with you're reducing resiliency here in this amount. I mean, I, these may not be, you know, things that yep. it does now, <laughs> but you've thought about, but. Oh, I have. I, absolutely. So, so you're absolutely right. So the trade-off of it's the, the, the analogy that you thought of, which is you're kind of moving from a packet switch world to something that's partly packet switch and partly circuit switch. That's exactly the way to think about it, in my opinion, as well. 
And the only reason why this makes sense, I mean, apart from like, you know, we demonstrate, you know, we show that, you know, it saves costs and, and things like that is because there are times when there are patterns in the traffic in our network that we understand very well. They're time-tested and we believe they're going to hold over time as well. Only then it makes sense uh, to, to do something like this, which happened to be very true for a cloud setting because of all the reasons that uh, Jeff brought up and we were discussing a little bit back. But yes, is there a trade-off with resiliency? There's, there certainly is. And that's a question, again, we thought about. And that's, again, something that the system would do for you. It would pick optical bypasses in your network for you, keeping into account that now, so for in, the, in the same analogy that we were using, whether it's New York, Chicago, Atlanta, previously, if you had a fiber cut, for example, between New York and Chicago, you were losing that edge. You were losing the connectivity between New York and Chicago. Now, if Chicago is getting bypassed, but the fiber path is still the same. And if you have a fiber cut somewhere, so if you have a fiber cut between New York and Chicago, you've essentially lost the connectivity from New York to Atlanta, right? So you, there is a resilience trade-off here. And the way that we've approached the resilience problem is we, we designed the tool in a way that we say, what is the resilience of the network right now? How many fiber cuts can it sustain today? Can it sustain two? Can it sustain one? Can it sustain three? and still be able to meet the demands we expect the network to meet, right? I'm going to take that metric and I'm going to make sure that my optimization is solving a problem, solving this problem in such a way that the resulting network after doing the optical bypasses is just as resilient. It's not, I'm not making the problem any worse than what it was when you started. And that's that we modeled failures in fiber in several different ways and you know, there's there's usually in, in cloud companies, and I'm sure in other wide area networks, the way people think about them is, can I sustain K fiber cuts at a given point of time and still meet some amount of demand? And the demand is specified, right? right? Yeah. So, and so on top of that, it's also per traffic class, right? So yeah. some traffic class are more important than other. There's also relative priorities and preemption between different types of traffic. Absolutely. Okay. So so think of think of the traffic classes. You think of uh, K failures at a given point of time, uh, K fiber cuts at a given point of time, and then you, you based on that, you provision capacity in the network to make sure that the demands do get met if the worst happens. And then there's another way of thinking about failures, which is, I think links in, I don't know, for example, South America have a higher likelihood of failing. They have a high, the, the likelihood of fiber cut in South America is higher. So I need to keep that in mind. Like, what is the likelihood of failures or likelihood of fiber cuts for different parts in, in my network? And given that, can I, in expectation, maximize the throughput in my network? So the, the, you can think of failures as stochastic event, you can, events. You can think of failures as, you know, they just happen. It's K-fiber cuts. And we look at both scenarios and we design versions of ShoeFly that let you make sure you're not making the problem any worse than the network you first started with. And so that, that, that's that's actually, yeah. yeah, no, that's actually really fascinating because that in and of itself is useful even without the traffic engineering bits necessarily, I would say, that a lot of people just don't even understand how you would go about building a network where you take into account these kinds of problems, right? That's something that I think is is. Much harder problem than people realize right there. But the problem space that. is not new, right? CCAM working group in ATF produced at least 50 RFCs talking about IP optical conversion. 
at some point I did a lot of work there when I was in Ericsson. And uh, many IP carriers in the US, so Verizon was the biggest one on uh, IP optical convergence. It never really materialized. Also GMP less work, if you remember. Yep. Really a lot of work, huge complexity. I mean, besides Telefonica, I'm not sure who else has ever deployed it at scale. So practically now with all the great people like Rush, obviously we've got brain powers, that's completely unmatched. Plus a lot of compute, <laughs> right? So we can actually afford to compute this bus because the network size is huge. I think we are like, I have exact numbers of how many kilometers of optics we have. It's in hundreds of thousands, right? Yeah, but but, we, but you can't talk about the exact numbers. You have to shoot everybody who listened to the show. We know that. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the complexity of computation is huge. And another interesting point, we all remember when we started doing IP fast route, suddenly convergence at ATM or SDH layer would get in the way, right? But they, they would just compete with each other. So you really need to understand how protection at IP layer interacts with protection at optical layer and make sure they're contributing to each other, not actually, you know, in the way of each other, which brings additional layer of complexity. Right, right. Uh, right. Cause, yeah, because when we were working on, for instance, not VIA, there were lots of issues around not just this, the number of amount of additional state you were sticking in the network, but even things like if you can't get your underlying layers to do as fast as not via can do, then, you know, what, what are you doing here? Right. You're not, you're not making serious gains if you're not building a, t a complete system. So that's pretty interesting piece of this work is just looking at it systemically and, and thinking about all the different pieces. Um, which is not something we do a lot in network engineering, by the way. And and this is kind of right separation of concerns. So if you look at network side, it's no black magic. It's still MPLS switching. It's still, you know, BGP-less northbound. It's still seats and labels flying around. It's the computational logic, the ability to bring multi-layer, multi-dimensional, multi-array problem and compute something as simple as optical path from A to B. Right. This is where the real power of this. And so, so you're using GPMLS. You're, you're using the optical pieces of MPLS here, which is another interesting thing because I don't think a lot of people are even familiar with that stuff. And a lot of people, not only they're not familiar with it, but you don't really find a lot of good use cases for it, honestly. I mean, there uh, are some. I meant actually IT pieces of MPLS, not optical pieces of MPLS. Okay. Not, no, not. Okay. That's fine. Yeah, so the layer one uh, label switching is kind of discipline on itself, and I don't think we should be discussing it here. Yeah, that's that's kind of. I, what I, was I at least too. learned something to Google for after this uh, after this conversation because I did not know that. Thank you for learning <laughs> <laughs> about that. Yeah, so we've always had this, you know, pendulum that goes from completely dynamic to completely static. So completely dynamic world would be SRM PLS to some degree RCPT. On another side, we had development of MPLS-TP or MPLS transfer profile, which is really incarnation of TDM in IP, right? So this stuff was completely static to the degree that every transport device would be provisioned for every uh, forwarding action. It's almost like open flow. So like push label right. 10 if you see this, push label 20 if you see that. So the truth is usually somewhere in between, right? If you go completely dynamic, 
the complexity at some point just you know it's your if you go completely static it just doesn't scale and becomes really uh fragile so finding this right golden middle is really yeah most exactly. yeah exactly and i think so, that's a great that's a great point i think even with i think that's the larger question for this work that uh, that we're talking about for shoefly which is like like russ was saying that you know you're trying to find some sort of middle ground between packet switching and circuit switching and the hope is that if you dial it a little bit towards circuit switching at a large scale it gives you some gains like it you know makes routers less busy it saves some ports that you can then use for provisioning other capacity and turns out if you provision capacity you're saving on the cost of provisioning capacity because you're using fewer router ports but figuring out what that right middle point operating point the way shufly does it is it tells it tells the operator that hey you know the most about your network here are the things that you could potentially do here are the here are the bypasses in the order of how much saving they'll give you and then you can decide which ones are realistic to do and which ones like what is the timeline of making these changes in your network and and that's our goal here is not to just it's it's not a completely automated system but it essentially feeds into the decision process for the network operator that reminds me of the the old offline traffic analysis tools that you'd use for planning your uh, traffic engineering. You know, back in the day, you'd load in your traffic matrix, and it would tell you put your LSPs here, here, and here. And seven hours later, yeah. and but by the time you <laughs> produce the results, you're not it was completely different. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, I did not. I did not know that it used to take. So now, uh, with traffic engineering, the the big big questions are we we do very, very something very similar, Tom, but it's just happening every five minutes. And everyone is so upset if it takes like more than eight or ten seconds. It's like, <laughs> oh my god, what's going to happen? It just took, did it just take ten seconds? Dear God, we need a new implementation. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. Oh yeah, well, I mean, that goes way back to the days of fast reroute again as well. Like a big argument was in the early day of fa- fa- days of fast reroute was you can't do that many SPFs that fast. So you can't do fast reroute in the router, right? We were talking 1,000, 2,000 SPFs in a second. People are like, you can't do 1,000 SPFs in a second. Well, I don't know where you've been, but yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, this is always another one of those state trade-off things where you have to think, how much state am I willing to toss in? And then as as Jeff just said, by the time you've computed in some of these older systems, your traffic has changed. And so now what you've just done is not very useful information any longer. And it was literally ours. I still remember it. You had single threaded, you know, 486 CPU with, I don't know, 16 gig of memory you paid $20,000 for. And next day you would see the results. <laughs> now the unlimited number of resources, ability to share, to multi-thread, to software that's properly written actually to use this capabilities gives you ability to compute this in parallel because it's not really different than many machine learning workloads, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that, that's all very interesting. So, I mean, just, just out of curiosity, I mean, now that we've talked a little bit about the system, what is, are there next steps here? What are you working on now? Where are you taking this? Is this something people can play with? Uh, Absolutely. Like, so, okay. Oh, okay. Let, let me answer that question. Absolutely. So the code for this work is on GitHub. We released it along with the tech report. 
please do take a look at it. If, if you know, if you find issues, uh, open them up on GitHub and we'll take a look at it. So certainly you can play with it. The code's up there. There's there are actually toy examples of public network topologies that you can uh, see what, you know, what the, what the tool does with. Ask for next steps. So along with, you know, trying to figure out with our, uh, with our collaborators in Azure networking about, you know, how should we go ahead and start, you know, doing these optical bypasses over a timeline. So that's certainly something that we've been thinking about and working, uh, working with them on. But the, the larger question, Russ, is something that you already nailed down, which is how, what does it mean? So where in that trade-off of circuit versus packet switching should we be? Does it depend on the type of traffic in the network? Does it depend on the class of traffic in the network? But sort of identifying that optimal operating point between these two extremes is the larger question here that I'm trying to figure out. Because on the very extreme, you could potentially have direct all optical paths between any source and destination in your network. But you would soon end up into these issues where the network looks like the topology ends up becoming like a almost an all a fully connected network that's bad for your LSPs, that's bad for tunnels, all of that stuff. So those are the sorts of questions that that we're thinking about where we want to identify what's that what's that optimal operating point between these two trade-offs uh, between these two extremes. And okay. as we said, the the data is dynamic, right? The total TCO changes depending on absolutely. Vendor your projection amount of fiber underground connectivity patterns and so forth. But I think the most fundamental point of all of this, know your stuff. <laughs> know what your network is doing, why. And this kind of fundamental to be able to, because you are making a, a prognosis of what it's going to be in five minutes, 20 minutes, maybe next day, right? So without having proper analysis in place, and historical data to rely upon, you're blind. It's a very yeah. good point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, well, I don't have, I don't know, Tom, do you have other questions you want to ask or anything you want to, like, kid at here? or Maybe not today, but I'd love to have another conversation later. I, I'm sure you have some interesting stories about what this has looked like. You kind of hinted at it when people get mad at you about the uh, time it takes. <laughs> <I love you. laughs> maybe, maybe in the future we can uh, we can talk about some stuff like that. No, this this is great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Thank so, you for having me. This is really fun. Yeah. So, Jeff, anything from you? It's a great discussion. I just wanted to bring one point, which is really kind of interesting. How we go full round. So we moved from ATM, SDH to Ethernet, and then IP took over. We implemented IP faster route, all of the stuff, and we said it must be all dynamic, no state. However, last year I just saw a new development that is emulation of TDM over segment routing. We've done full <laughs> route, people. <laughs> oh, that's great, Jeff. That's awesome. You know, it's really funny because when I started in networking so, so many years ago, we had circuit switched. I mean, I started out almost on the circuit switch side, working with old Stroger switches and, and other stuff that nobody wants to know about anymore. And in fact, our primary troubleshooting tool was um, was electrical spray and WD-40 to uh, get, the get the mechanical switches up and running again when somebody would complain that their line wasn't my line is noisy. So we go out and we take some electrical contact spray and spray down the uh, contacts on the stroker <laughs> switch that they were connected to. And so, so, yeah, I'm pretty old. Anyway. A very different kind of networking. I, I have yeah. not seen it. <laughs> yeah. 
But it's just funny because this argument's been going on in the networking world for so many years, and we went through it with ATM, and then ATM begat MPLS with with uh, label switching through Yakov, and all this stuff that went on. And yet here we are still trying to figure out how to blend practically the attributes of a circuit switch network with the attributes of a packet switch network. And it's it's a very hard problem. So, all right. So, Tom, where can people get in touch with you if they want to or follow you on your non-existent blog? See, you stayed around long <laughs> enough, so. I should buy a domain name, Tom's Non-Blog, and have it be a picture that's just, that page is just a picture of Russ with a little speech bubble mocking me. So, no blog, but you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Just search for Tom Ammon. An intentional part of the cobweb. <laughs> the web that never gets updated. So Jeff, <laughs> where can people follow you or get in contact with you or whatever if they want to talk to you uh, about whatever you're yeah, working on? You can on. find me on LinkedIn and most of my LinkedIn is automatically shared on Twitter. We also publish bi-weekly a, a podcast called Between Two Nerds where we go really in deep oh, yeah. details of routing and everything else. And uh, Russ is our, you know, one of the most... <laughs> Only Tony P did more episodes than you. One of uh, our lovely guests that provides a lot of insights, <laughs> you know, a lot of intellectual thinking about what networking is. So, yeah. but practically, yeah. LinkedIn is the best way to. Get okay. And uh, Rachi, how do we people? How do people get in touch with you? I, I assume you write from time to time. Do you write on APNIC regularly, or just whatever they pick up? Are you in research journals people can find, or or what? What about you? Yeah, so I, I have uh, my, if you, if you Google for me, I have a web page where you can find my Twitter, all the, uh, the papers, the tech reports that we publish uh, about okay. the work. And uh, yeah, so LinkedIn, Twitter, those are ways to, and also okay. my emails on my web, website. So feel free to send me an email if you have any questions about this work or any other work that, I've, that I have. Totally awesome. Great. Okay. And I'm Russ White. You can always find me here at the hedge at rule11.tech. LinkedIn, don't PM me on Twitter. I say that all the time. People <laughs> still do it. I don't log into Twitter, guys. I mean, I'm sorry. I just don't log into Twitter. I and, feel like now I've got to do it. I have to PM you on Twitter. Yeah, okay, go right ahead. I just, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things. I keep up with LinkedIn and email and stuff a lot better. And you can always reach me at rule11.tech and stuff. So anyway, well, thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge. This was a great conversation about future of network stuff and, you know, going back into some older stuff as well. And well, We'll catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.